Anyways, we're live. We are live right now. We are live right now. So have we been live? What's that? Was that whole conversation live? Yeah. Nice. We can edit it. All right. Well, introductions. Introductions. Zach is with me here today, and we have a very special guest. We do. Sam. Louie. How special? Very, very special. <laughs> very special. First live guest as well. Dad. First live guest with the two of us. <laughs> yeah. I've had a few live guests, but... I mean, in person? Yeah. I brought the, the hardware to the, the college. Uh, okay. So, you know, but it works good. Yeah. But Zach actually uh, last minute texted me yesterday and said, I got a cool guest that we should bring on the show and forwarded me that article that you wrote uh, for, was it Psychology Today? Yeah. I can't even remember what I wrote. <laughs> Other than it was inspired by this book, uh, Transforming Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu. Transforming Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu. Well, for, for, for first of all, Sam, can you give a quick introduction? What is it that uh, that you do? I know you're a behavioral therapist, I think you said. Uh, more uh, just regular talk therapist. Um, so I work a lot with individuals. My training is in uh, marriage and family therapy. So it's it's good for individuals, couples, families. But I think primarily folks who come in are usually going to be individuals or couples um, just because families are hard to get the entire family in. Uh, I mean, I do have a couple of families, but those usually only come in like on the weekends when people have their time. That makes sense. So uh, a therapy session, but you also do a lot of uh, writing, author, speaker, motivational speaker. <laughs> I So prior to therapy, I've been a therapist or graduated from um, grad school. It's, it's been about a dozen years and the 12 or 13 years prior to that, I used to work in journalism. Oh, so hence I just, it's kind of natural for me to, to just write and storytell. That's just kind of been in, in, in something I picked up through journalism. Yeah. I could tell when I was, I was reading the article, I thought, this guy's a seasoned writer. Yeah. <laughs> it was very well written, which is why I probably sent it to like 15 or 20 people. Now yeah. I just got to read this. Well, yeah, you sent it to me and, and I was reading it, you know, it's about, uh, you know, healing through trauma and jujitsu. And uh, I'm reading it and I'm reading it, and then I scroll back up, and then I looked at the picture, and I said, "Wait <laughs> a second, that's that you said that that hack <laughs> standing up there in the background, standing up there in the background, tired and sweaty." <laughs> and then I looked at you know the little author picture, and it said Sam Louie. And then I looked over the side of the, oh wait, there's oh these guys know each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it all worked out because I had no idea what you did. I mean like people don't really talk necessarily about what they do um in class it's pretty rare so when you know professor sent that into the group chat and i read it i was like damn this makes so much sense like everything that i've felt for the last you know however long i've been training was like actually put into words and it was very interesting you know the irony of that is uh uh, I had asked professor oh hey can i just borrow borrow this picture i'll courtesy i'm writing a uh a blog about jujitsu and trauma and I'll just send you the link when it's done. So I sent it private privately to him thinking nobody would really be interested because, you know, jujitsu and therapy, it seems like two such disparate worlds. So then when he put it on our on our group chat and it just kept blowing up, all these people resonated with it. People were sharing their own experiences of how jujitsu has been a part of their mental health. I was really uh, I, I think I was just struck by how common of a chord, at least for our our academy. Yeah. But then something, you know, 
exercise in general as a therapy, uh, whether or not people like to admit, you know, that they're using exercise as more of a mental type of therapy session. You know, when I was personal training, one of the mm. things that I always said was that I'm more of a therapist than I am you know, <laughs> exercise. It, and, and, and one of the best things I could do is just keep you away from the refrigerator for a couple hours, you know, rather than what the workout is that you're actually doing. Um, but, but there's something to be said about exercise itself being something that is sort of a therapeutic type of event. And do you notice it like with all types of exercise therapies or, you know, cause obviously what you're, you're talking about was specific to mm-hmm. Jitsu and, and we'll get into that, but exercise in general, do you see it, you know, as working with people that it can be a way to alleviate a lot of the, the mental, um, what's the right word for it? Traumas or turmoil, turmoil, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Well, I think it can. It just depends. Everybody's uh, so different. So I don't really do anything. I might go around and walk around the block with them. That's like the most active thing I might be able to do. But whatever they do, they would be doing it on their own. And then they might come back and report like, hey, I started doing this. I started running or marathons. Um, I think just because of how individuals uh, are made up, we all have different things that we we, we gravitate towards. Um, I grew up in South Seattle uh, and I graduated from Rainier Beach High School, which is you know just like down the street from our academy. And growing up in South Seattle, basketball was like the thing. We had a number of players. Renee Robinson. From, yeah, yeah, from Rainier Beach. We ended up going to uh, the NBA. I think there was easily like three or four of them. So basketball was big, but I don't know if I ever chose the sport. Does that make sense? Sure. Like yeah. it was just what everybody did, and I just kind of went along with the flow. There, yeah. and as I mentioned in the blog, um, at one point basketball was fine when I was living in LA at the time. But I wanted—I I don't know—I wanted something that had more of um, more structure and discipline. Because when you in basketball, you just play it right. There's there's not really any goal other than to win. I not had never done any martial arts and I was like, you know, I think I want one. I just want something that can feel empowering, but also has some element of growth. This was when I was in journalism. So I wasn't even, you know, thinking about therapy. Mm-hmm. So that was when I first got my first glimpse of, uh, jujitsu yeah. in LA. Interesting. Yeah. Cause you know, one of the things that I have hypothesized about, I guess, is is with strength sports or with combat sports or something like that, there's this point at which, and even endurance sports, you know, because I, I raised cycling and mm. cross-country skis in college, um, that point at which it gets very intense and, like, let's say that you're doing a strength sport, you're squatting, you're deadlifting or something like that, and it's very heavy, uh, there's a point at which nothing else really matters. Mm-hmm. Like you're either, your only goal at that entire moment is to stand up with the bar or, you know, get crushed by the bar. And so whatever was going on earlier that day, doesn't matter. Same thing with when you're rolling for a lot of times. If it's an intense roll or something like that, nothing else really, you're very much in the moment. Yeah. Your brain's like empty. Yeah. You very much just concentrated on what you're doing at the moment. Whereas, you know, I found with long distance running and stuff like that, when I was doing marathons, ultra marathons, and I've, I've done a couple Ironman, Mm. um, one of the biggest 
things that you were trying to overcome was the fact that you're just getting all these intrusive thoughts. And especially, <laughs> you know, when you're training, it's like, oh, I still have to do the laundry. I still have to take the dog for a walk. And it's like, ah, it starts to weigh on you. But with the, with the combat sports or with the strength sports, it was like, none of that mattered at that moment. And it was almost like when you finished, you had this sort of sense where you actually got a break from a lot of the interrupting thoughts that are always coming in. You know, that's, that was something that I noticed. And have you done other combat sports? You did boxing, right? I did boxing and then, and then, uh, jujitsu. Yeah. Cause I experienced that. I didn't experience it back when I did like karate when I was a teenager. Um, but when I did like Muay Thai or boxing, jujitsu, all three of those, it like kind of felt the same where you go quiet. And then I also experienced it climbing like, uh, I hate top rope climbing or like trad climbing in general. It's just not my thing, but bouldering, you're like focused on the problem and you kind of have to select your route accordingly, like how you're going to get to the top, you know? And at a certain point it gets stressful and there's like a certain amount of danger. I mean, you have pads beneath you, but like you can mess yourself up pretty good climbing regardless. Oh, you can tear all sorts of stuff. So you got to be very careful in particular. And it feels like that's kind of what it is with combat sports like jujitsu. Jujitsu, if you're reckless, you can get hurt. If you're boxing or doing Muay Thai and you are reckless, drop your hands, do whatever, throw a sloppy leg kick and you get checked and end up like Anderson Silva. <laughs> you don't want that. So you got to be like focused on what you're doing and you just don't have any space in your brain for all the other random intrusive thoughts or um, like overthinking or whatever. You know, I was going to add to what you said earlier about the uh, intrusive thoughts because I do remember when I was in LA, uh, I was just kind of sick of basketball. I wanted something different, right? So bef even before jujitsu, some other friends were doing like triathlons and they were like sprint triathlons. So it wasn't anything too intense, but it got me exposed to what does it mean to swim a certain distance to, and then to run a certain distance or wait, wait, it was swim, bike, run. Um, but you're right. In all those sports, whether it was training or actually doing it, I, I could start thinking about other things, <laughs> you know, like uh, swimming. I still do swimming for just like for recreation and it's meditative because I can kind of just like, you know, you, you can just, whether it's running, as long as I'm not like sprinting, right? Yeah. The brain can still be attending to other things. But I remember once I started jujitsu, like there was this mindfulness piece. I didn't call it mindfulness at the time. But like, I have to be very present. There's, I can't think about anything else. And I think that is one of the, um, one of the cool things about me. I don't know. I grew up at a time when ADD wasn't really diagnosed at the time, but I still uh, would tell my therapist, like, I just remember as young as second grade, the teacher is reading Marco Polo. I have my legs, you know, cross legs. And whatever she was saying was just going in and out, in and out, because I could just not remember anything. So uh, what that speaks to is when I'm doing um, something like jujitsu, there is no, I mean, I guess I could still have some of that ADD, but I have to be very focused. I can't yeah. have my attention running around everywhere. So um, I tried other things too, like judo when I was uh, in grad school, but it didn't have the same level of... Um, it, 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 what's the right word? Discomfort. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you fall down in judo, boom, you got, you know, hey, you got reset, right? Where here, you're in a bad position. You got to work through it. You just got to stay stuck in, stuck and get out of it. And yeah. so there's something really, um, I think just 
I don't want to say not just physically, but there's something very mentally and spiritually empowering when I can tap into something within and say, don't give up, right? Like, how do you just kind of stay with something, uh, whether we call it grit or perseverance, that I don't know if I did that in those other sports, because I did a marathon and I did the triathlons and I swam certain distances and races, but for me, those things, those those activities, I don't know if it gave me that extra sense of both the discomfort and where I actually have to fight through all the negative uh, thoughts that can crop up. Yeah. So, well, let's 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 walk through first of all the the therapy through jujitsu because I did you know I found it I found it. Um, fascinating where you're talking about healing mm. through trauma and there's sort of that one aspect that you that you mentioned which was the perfect word that i was looking for which is you know there's a sense of presence mm -hmm. uh which is i guess we could probably say is somewhat missing a lot in yeah. our days especially i've noticed one of the biggest things i noticed moving to seattle because i came from wisconsin and coming from that midwest sort of a little bit slower pace of life there was very much that sense of you're sort of in the moment and you could enjoy it and there's not a rush as much for things i moved to seattle and it was like getting on the fast lane and you know there's people everywhere you're not really moving much at your pace because you're just moving with the crowd you know and you're just sort of trying to to keep yourself together within this chaotic type of thing and there's somebody always screaming at you from the side of the road and you know there's all these sort of things happening but that sense of, of presence you mentioned about, you know, that's something that is perhaps therapeutic right now in that moment. But when you're talking about healing for like traumas and things, that's a sort of a different aspect, right? Because now it's talking about deep rooted memories that can be recalled that elicit certain feelings and healing from that, from a, from a therapy perspective, is that different than perhaps someone that's just seeking like an escape from a chaotic environment. I didn't know, if, Zach, if you wanted to speak on this first. Uh, I mean, I can give it my best shot. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like uh, traumatic experiences, PTSD, those kind of go hand in hand with the military and we're kind of familiar with that background. But people, at least from my understanding, also we talked about it in the group chat, um, the book that you had mentioned in there, uh, like healing the mind, body. Oh, the uh, the body keeps the score. Body keeps score. Yeah, oh, yeah. So that book is a great book, and he talks about it. Um, how you know people with PTSD or these like severely traumatic experiences, like sort of lose control of their body. They can't like figure out what's going on, and they lose that sort of connection within themselves. And you know, you talked about that in your article a little bit. Um, how people are able to like regain that confidence in their own body and like empowering in that sense. Um, I mean, I know that it's helped me a ton and like the talk therapy I started, you know, three years ago and it made a pretty big difference. But then when I started doing jujitsu with just traditional talk therapy, I saw like a huge increase in how I felt all the time. Um, or like even people with uh, health anxiety, you know, one of the common things is like if you are concerned when your heart starts racing and you're, you know, convinced that you have like heart disease, your therapist can tell you, you know, maybe you should go for a run elevate your heart rate and they get comfortable with that feeling and that's kind of like a mindfulness piece as well when you meditate like there's meditations that focus specifically on uh 
like feeling every body sensation from head to toe and you're focused on your forehead and then your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your ears, like all the way down to each individual toe. Um, I think jujitsu presents like a interesting way to deal with that in and of itself. But do you want to take over? Same. Well, I, I'll um, uh, take some anecdotes, anecdotes from this book, Transforming Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu. These two are uh, therapists who work have a lot of specialties when it comes to trauma training. And they had mentioned that at some point, no matter how much talk therapy they were doing, they really felt like a lot of the trauma was trapped in the body. And, you know, they would talk about reference that the body keeps the score because a lot of what um, the, the latest therapeutic research these days has been more body-based. Uh, so somatic therapy might be a, a phrase you might hear. And that's basically like, how do you incorporate the body? It could be as something as simple um, as paying attention to your body. So I work a lot with, uh, since I'm Asian American, some of my clients are Asian American. And if I ask them to talk about trauma or, or strong emotions, and they they're not really used to that, they don't really have the vocabulary because they didn't grow up in a family or culture that encouraged it. But then if I would ask them, well, how is this impacting your body? Some paying attention to the body, then they might say, hey, I have some muscle soreness, stiffness, indigestion, sleep issues, migraines. And then it kind of opens up uh, an, an, another world that I would say was untapped if I was not, if I was just focused on, you know, hey, just talk about your thoughts and feelings. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. <laughs> I never really uh, I thought about putting those two together because, I mean, obviously we know long-term, let's say, sympathetic activation is certainly going to result in hypertension or it's going to result in some sort of muscular imbalances because you're always sort of tight and, you know, on edge. And I never thought about the fact that these things which are, you know, uh, arising from a mental state, right? You're hyper sympathetic at the moment could then, I guess, take root into some physical type of injury type of situations or some sort of physical abnormalities that then you could use as to say, okay, we don't necessarily want to just open up right away about the mind, but what do you got going on in the body? And what do you think could be causing, you know, I wonder, uh, if that, that's a interesting way to, to look at it. You it's know. less threatening for them to talk about. Right. Because, because emotions. like, especially if I, you know, well, we didn't want to get canceled this early, but you know, just, <laughs> here we are. Right? <laughs> but as a man, you know, very much growing up in uh, a Midwestern type of situation uh, where we did a lot of farming, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I originally had started school to be a diesel mechanic. And so before I switched to, you know, neuroscience and physiology, big jump, big jump. But anyways, in that typical shop atmosphere type of type of situation, just you know, idea, you know, it, growing up in that type of, of environment, you don't necessarily, if someone were to come up and say, how are you doing mentally? You'd say, good, doing good. Living like, that, that's <laughs> always the answer. Yeah. 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 No matter what. Yeah, no matter what's going on. But if someone were to come up and say, hey, how's your neck been hurting? You know, it's like, oh, it's getting a little, you would, you would open up more about that sort of thing than you would about some sort of mental state, wouldn't you? I don't know, you, you 
What about in the military? I mean, I'm assuming it's a similar. Oh yeah. It's like everything is like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like, you're not, I mean, people complain constantly as part of it. There's like a saying, if you ain't complaining, you ain't training, which is <laughs> pretty normal. But, uh, you just typically don't talk about anything. Like you might have, you know, a late night if you're like sitting in a fighting hole or like you're on patrol and you're just like kind of not even a patrol. If you're on a hike, if you're on a ruck, if you're doing anything like that and you can kind of like bullshit with your buddies, you might get into some deep stuff. I've had plenty of deep conversations late at night in the military, but from a like top down perspective, people do all sorts of stuff like psychological outreach programs and you know there's all these like suicide classes that we have to take it doesn't really help anything because everyone's too scared to like pipe up and say something if you do say something they're like oh stop you know you know stop being a pussy just keep going and it's like you can deal with your feelings after the mission is complete and then the mission's complete and it's like well you don't have time for feelings right now because now we're on a workup for a new mission now we're training for this new piece of gear that we got whatever like you're still shit at so patrolling you're still shit at clearing room so like stuff your emotions get better and then once you're better we'll talk and then you're never good enough so you just don't talk so do you think the aspect of a con like a contextual closedness basically the idea that you know if you're in a, a group of i think if we generalize and say like a, a bunch of gym bros you know you would expect these sort of beating their chests like a gorilla, trying to to exercise and that kind of thing, and very competitive with each other, mm -hmm. you know. There's this, perhaps a stigma to say that everyone, no one shares their feelings, that it's very much just about, you know, like you're saying, just get on with the mission. And no just stuff and everything. But those were some of the environments in which a lot of men that I've noticed, like very much open up to each other. Like it, it was less what you would think, you know, like, to, like when you go into like a hardcore powerlifting gym, when I was doing powerlifting for a while, it was one of the most like open environments. People were talking about how they felt and how this would make them sad or this would make them angry or this, you know, it was almost the opposite of what you would expect. But, you know, like you were talking about Zach, that there's these points at which you put those feelings to the side and say, I have to like, regardless of how I'm feeling, I have to finish the mission and then you can open up afterward and you can deal with it. Do you think that, um, so basically in that idea that there's this contextual um, or environmental cues that might trigger someone to be more open about how they're feeling, do you think that over time that that could expand such that a person, you know, um, originally is very much open to sharing how they feel and uh, what triggers them or what is making them feel a certain way, but then uh, the list of things that causes them to close them off to say, I need to put my feelings aside for a moment. And then once those things are removed, you know, like if I'm at work or something, I can't share how I'm feeling or something like that, but it just sort of start to grow and grow into a point where someone becomes completely closed off to being able to share how they feel. I think that can happen. Um, like, so if you're some of the clients I work with come former military or former, uh, let's say EMT where they see a lot of, um, tragedy. Yeah. And I was like, how do you deal with that on a day in day out basis? Like, well, it's my job. I know how to just like put it in a different compartment. Yeah. But I think in recent years, uh, clients would share with me that, well, our department is also have, they have a lot of different resources where 
it might be as formal as counseling, but it could be as informal as like, hey, there's a place where you can just go and talk to somebody, an, a captain or whoever it is, just to debrief about what you had encountered out there. So I think it actually feels like there are more avenues in some of these um, uh, trauma-centered occupations where they can get more help and expand. But if somebody's used to compartmentalizing, because I do have clients that have compartmentalized all their lives because of their their backgrounds or jobs, and like, I don't know, this just feels very uncomfortable that you're you're unlike an emotional can opener. Yeah. So they don't like that. So they're like, okay, why don't we just pause? Let's just talk, talk, start with the body. Um, and remember, I haven't. I this is all new for me. I haven't been been very body focused until. I would say the past five years, because I see a therapist and then he's very body centric, like, you know, close your eyes. Can you do a head to toe scan? Can you tell me what's coming up? At first it's like nothing, <laughs> like nothing. <laughs> Let me, you know, I don't, I don't have anything. Sore from squats. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have an interesting story that I, when, as I read more books about body-based therapies that opened my eyes, because when I was in broadcasting, uh, I was doing um, TV journalism. So part of it was recording into a microphone, working on your. Uh, my, one of my uh, managers said, "Hey Sam, why don't you take a, a take some voice lessons?" Mm-hmm. And so um, I was taking some workshop by I don't know somebody half day workshop, and they were doing some basic uh, stretching exercises of the tongue and the neck, and you know just opening up your diaphragm. And I was like, I don't know, I got all this tension. And then the gal next to me is like, hey, I'm a massage therapist. During the break, can I work with you? I was like, sure, okay. And so you'll you'll never... So she touched a part of my forearm right here. Huh. And I just exploded in tears. Really? It was the wildest thing. And she was like, what is that all about? Emotionally or because it hurt? No, 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 emotionally. <laughs> no, there, there, there's no pain. She just pressed it in there like some... Um, some some point and then all these tears came out she asked me what what was that about and so i was probably pretty compartmentalized at this time i was like oh you know i'm the oldest of three sons i'm the firstborn of a chinese immigrant family and i just felt like as the oldest brother i really let my two brothers down of not really being there for them and so all these feelings of guilt um came out but i didn't know that it had been like so stored until like my whole body was was in it, it felt a, a, a lot more on uh relaxed after that but that made me think like wow there are there is a lot of stuff that we can store in our bodies that are unbeknownst to the to the brain sure yeah that is interesting like the way that trauma is stored like in the body like for example personal story but uh like, like late personal stories yeah I, no, <laughs> stories. like late last year i had a lot of tightness in my hips like right above the hip bones both sides it was constantly in pain i had no idea what was going on and uh like my shoulders felt very tight my traps felt very tight and i wasn't the kind of person that would cry it wasn't like i didn't have feelings or like i don't understand my feelings and emotions i just couldn't cry like physically couldn't cry and then in january dry, one of my dry. friends what dry eye syndrome dry eye syndrome it might have been <laughs> i don't know what it was but in january uh one of my friends that was in my unit killed himself and it like struck a huge chord and i cried for like pretty much three days straight i was able to cry and like all the tension that was stored in my shoulders and my hips like completely washed away 
and I didn't like, I haven't had hip pain. I haven't had shoulder pain since then, but it felt like it was probably just being stored in that manner physically in my muscles. So I definitely think there's something to it. Nick, I don't know if you have a story about your body. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, I've been hurt a lot. <laughs> Never to the point where crying has released the, the tension. I'm just maybe it's what time was running through my head as I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to figure out from a neuroscientist mm. perspective, you know, because perhaps the the core memory or the experience itself may not have a physical embodiment into the body structure. However, let's say that pressing on there elicits a somatosensory type of response from the cortex and we know that many of these neural circuits are not as well conserved as we think they are and so there's a lot of crossover bleed over between the different uh nuclei or the different areas of the brain and not only that but there's there's usually these gradients so you know when you learn in neuroscience you learn that the the prefrontal cortex is this area and the ventral respiratory column is this area or whatever and that's true for the most part but under different conditions, they extend and they contract. And so like the actual uh, the arrangement of the nuclei changes um, as far as like which neurons are recruited and which ones aren't. And so there's a bit of bleed over between some of the different areas. And so let's say that you're pushing on, you know, by the ulnar nerve or whatever it is, and you're getting a, a sensory modality or a, a sensory phenomenon occurring within the higher <laughs> order cortex center. But if it's near a center that is part of an engram or the, you know, the basic circuitry of a memory of something else, it could trigger the activation of that just by way of proximity activation. Because if you're activating the neurons and they're synaptically coupled with the other ones, all it takes is to activate, you know, one neuron within the pathway of that engram, which is where that memory is stored. And it can trigger the, the activation of it. And so I'm wondering if there's a, a physical pathway by which you could map it out. I mean, I, as far as I know, it hasn't been studied, but that would be kind of a fascinating study. You could traumatize mice and then just walk around. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like you could, uh, conducting a study on it would be actually relatively simple because you could do a task or, or not only you could do a task, but we could just use like optogenetic stimulation to ingrain a memory into a certain region of the brain that's very much close to, let's say, somewhere that has a somatosensory relay um, for sensory information. And then we could stimulate, you know, that part of the arm or whatever, and we can see whether or not it could reactivate that memory that we implanted into a completely separate, different brain region. And why would, since you're the neuroscientist, why would a trauma or at least the memory be stored in like when I think about that forearm experience, I'm like, sure. Well, wouldn't guilt and and feelings of responsibility be stored more in the heart area? You know what I mean? Uh, if, of, of, of a random place in in well, my that's, forearm. That's what I mean. Like from proximity, like perhaps in part of whatever part of the you know the homunculus mapping of the brain has that part of the arm. You know, it might be lying close to a deep brain structure that has the actual physical storage of that trauma memory. And so you could activate it by way of activating something that was pretty close in proximity. So that's what I, I don't know. I'm just throwing out hypotheses. <laughs> you're the person that asked <laughs> you, You're the neuroscientist. <laughs> to trying to figure out a mechanism by which it, you know, because 
I'm a big fan of the fact that if the phenomenon exists, you know, we probably just don't understand the mechanism of it yet. You know, just because we don't have something that's published to say that doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that we haven't studied it and there is not funding for it yet at this point. But if you found that, you know, uh, grieving over um, one of your uh, people that was in your military group, Mm-hmm. committing suicide relieved the tension and you found that pushing on that area of or massaging that area of the forearm could elicit uh some regressed emotions yeah like then who are we to to question to say whether or not it's real or um you know the heavy chest feeling that if someone has a lot of guilt or someone has i don't know you're you're better at this <laughs> than i am you know they feel like it's weighing heavy on their chest and then they just feel like there's a weight that's been lifted off after they've expressed those emotions yeah oh that's fascinating yeah it, so there's um another thing when i ask clients to focus on their body uh sometimes they'll come in and say let's i don't know use a generic example very anxious right about something uh well actually my mom i i, I was having i had dim sum with her a few months back and she kept complaining that she couldn't sleep like she's had all these sleep issues can't sleep and i was like oh mom i just learned this new technique <laughs> um and so it makes it more less vulnerable for her to talk about like why can't you sleep right because that's asking somebody to directly go into their brain and logically tell me yeah why they're not sleeping she couldn't do that because there's we have defenses so there's this technique that I've been um, intrigued about. It's called IFS, Internal Family Systems. All it means is I'm going to externalize whatever the issue is. Let's say, so my mom can't sleep. So I said, mom, you know, this part of you that struggles to sleep, can we just separate it from you? It, it sounds a little wild, but I had it, mom, okay, you're sitting across from me, mom. The part that can't sleep, just have it sit here. <laughs> And remember, my my mom speaks uh, Cantonese, and you know everything is translated a little bit English Cantonese. So was it the best? Mm-hmm. But my wife was watching this, and she was blown away because I said, "Mom, this is the part of you that can't sleep. Can you have it just talk a little bit?" Yeah. So having it embodied in a different form, sitting in a chair, and she started opening up about things that she had never talked about before. And she meant like the stress of like, what's going to happen to the house, you know, when they pass away, who's going to get it, how are we, and then worried about me and my two younger brothers, how are we all coping with life? And she would never directly say this to us. Um, but it was there, right? It's there. And I don't even know if she could have accessed it because uh, I've asked her this number numerous times, like, why can't you sleep? But with this technique, she actually started talking. And then my wife and I were driving home like, wow, that is wild. My wife, I mean, my mom never talks like that. Yeah, Zach, this is the part of you that has small calves. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you have something like not uh, not really traumatic but like mildly you know mild to moderately either of you that you know you would like that's somewhat concerning does that make sense but some people might say i have a procrastinator part no you know this part bugs me or whatever it is definitely definitely i mean i talk about this stuff in therapy which one the procrastinator part no like uh the same exercise as that oh you do that my first round of therapy i did that for like uh 
probably two months. Oh, so she like was having, probably trained in IFS uh, or something similar? He might have been, but he would have me like um, imagine, you know, this person is in the room. Oh. What would you say to them right now? And it was like, you know, just various mm-hmm. ch- childhood trauma experiences surrounded by uh, one person or related to one person. Like, what would you say to them if they're in the room? Mm-hmm. And it's like I wasn't talking to him, my therapist. I was talking to the person. Yeah. That was related to the trauma. Um, Empty chairs, that's what, you know, that's another, mm-hmm. uh, what is description of what you're talking about. Let's put an empty chair there and let's put somebody there that you want to talk to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fascinating. Very interesting stuff. This, the therapy stuff, is it blows my mind. It's really cool. You should try it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a match coming up, right? Yeah. So, like, I'm assuming you might have some, I don't know if it's anxiety, but concerns. Uh, yeah, I was actually really good until today, like very, uh, calm and collected the whole time. And then today I started thinking like, you know, um, very simple stuff. Like how do I defend this? You know, what is this aspect of the match going to look like? You know, what if I get in a situation where like, uh, you know, I don't know any various situation that I could end up in during a match. I think about that. And then I'm trying to think of a counter and a counter if they counter it and just like going through a like a, a flow chart basically mm-hmm. of everything that i've ever learned and i kind of realize like it's useless to try and map it all out and just go with the flow because i think in competition you know you get nervous people get amped up and they like adrenaline dump and they just hold on for dear life and they stiffen up and uh if you can stay calm and relax and keep your body like fluid and moving like you do in training every day then you'll be fine so um I didn't do anything specific to calm down. I just kind of worked through like a mental exercise. Well, this anxious part, I don't know if you want to try it. Mm-hmm. I'm not your therapist, but. <laughs> we can do it. Well, like, gotta now, is, it is, well, I don't want to be presumptuous. Is it anxiety or is there a different uh, no, I would phrase that, to, okay. Yeah. Do we have an extra chair anywhere? <laughs> uh, no, we do. I can grab one. We got a chair. Let me grab Oh, we got a chair. I'm, I'm grabbing a chair. It looks better when we actually have the empty chairs, you know. Yeah. Get over here, hand these. Do a wall sit. All right. All right. Okay. We got the chair. This is live therapy on the podcast. <laughs> live therapy. Don't try this at home. Maybe do try this at home. <laughs> Software developer, neuroscientist. <laughs> we have an empty chair and a. Oh, I didn't know you did. You said you do software development. Yeah. For the restaurant group? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I should really do this on my Labradoodle, who has some other time <laughs> uh, He has a lot. Can't of speak Labradoodle yet. Anyway. So, Zach, imagine we literally just pulled that anxious part out of you, and it's sitting here in this chair. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of uh, uh, before we even start, part of the goal is to be able to have you dialogue with it so that this anxiety lowers, right? Yeah. Um, how do you personally feel towards this anxious part? I think that it is annoying. Okay. So what we want to do is clear the space because uh, if you find it annoying, then this anxious part might not really want to speak uh, freely Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's an annoyed part that's right there front and center. Yeah. Um, Just imagine there's another chair back there. (laughs) Okay. If we ask the annoyed part to just take a back seat, it could just observe... um, is it willing to take a back seat and relax over there? Yeah. All right. Now I'll go back. Now, how do you feel towards this uh, anxious part, knowing that the annoyed part is uh, over there just 
hanging out. Just hanging out over there. Um, I would say that there's worry about the outcome. Now, when I hear you say that, is that the uh, the anxious part talking? Yeah. Okay, so this is where it can get a little confusing. Uh, I want you to be able to really think about, um, and you might even ask this anxious part to separate itself from you, right? So I gave it some more physical distance. Um, now, how do you, on your end, feel towards this anxious part? Like it's natural. I don't know if that's a feeling. Oh, it almost seems like you're blended together, like you're fused together with the anxious part. You're saying it it feels natural to be anxious? Is that what you're saying? In this situation, yeah. Okay. Oh, you're telling the anxious self it's okay. Basically, yeah. Like uh, sort of acceptance. Okay, okay. Well, that's good enough. So like you don't, uh, before you're annoyed at it, are you um, like, are you at least curious about it? At the very least, I'm just trying to get you to be, at least have neutral feelings towards this part. If that yeah. decides. Um, yeah, I think the annoyed part is because I recognize that it's like a normal, natural worry um, or anxiety that you should feel. Okay. But accepting it um, is part of it. Um, okay, so you at least have neutral and or positive feelings at this point towards this anxious part. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. the annoyed part's over there. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this is kind of a free-for-all. Ask this anxious part to, you know, just kind of share a little bit of what it, he, you know, whatever it, it wants to say to you. And sometimes people would say, well, what it's telling me is this, or he's telling me this. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to actually ask it what it wants to tell me? You can just mentally ask it and then have it respond to you. Okay. Okay. That. Or just to make it clear, what does this anxious part um, want to say right now? Um, I think that it would want to say that this is part of the process. And when you do something stressful like that, you should feel anxious. And also, um, the physical symptoms, I think, are the same as excitement. Mm-hmm. You know, like your heart starts racing a little bit, which it's not right now. But your heart starts racing a little bit, you might have sweaty hands. You might be thinking about it a lot, which is something that happens with anxiety and excitement. Um, and, and say that it's good for the preparation okay. to feel anxious about it. Because I'm trying to facilitate a dialogue, do you have any questions for this anxious part? At what point does it go away? What, what does it or he share with you? <laughs> when you're done. <laughs> when you're done um and you can ask the anxious part um because it's separate from you right because mm-hmm. we've extracted it from you where does this anxious part uh notice it in its own body probably stomach chest okay so the anxious part notices it in the stomach chest area um i will ask you um where do you notice your own ang- ang- anxiety? Same place. Okay, so you guys might be uh, refused related. <laughs> <laughs> We're brothers. <laughs> Ask this part, um, since it has a physical sensation in mind, like this stomach. Did you say stomach chest area? Yeah, or stomach chest area where it has the anxiousness. Ask it to see if it can recall, kind of an earlier memory in time 
where it, it had a similar feeling of anxiety manifested in this stomach chest area. Does it give you an age or a time frame at all? Um, probably in the military. Okay. Um, can you ask it to share a little bit more? Like, was it a specific event? Was it the entire time? Like, yeah. The first thing that comes up is like in your training, this is early on in boot camp. You have to like climb this big ass tower thing and it's sketchy and I don't like heights and I had to climb the tower and it <laughs> manifested in that way. <laughs> it was uh it was rough but it was the same kind of thing like the lead up induced anxiety and then the anxiety doesn't go away until you're done the anxiety gives a little bit of uh like a motivation almost mm -hmm. and like a focus that you can't get unless you're nervous i'm not too familiar other than i think i've seen these videos where they're climbing something um, if you ask this part, why did it show up right then? Because there's all kinds of different things you have to go through in the military, right? Mm -hmm. What about, when you ask it, what about that particular incident was provoked this anxiety? Um, I think the danger involved, that oh. was sort of solely based on you. Like in your performance. Like if you fail, it can get dangerous for you. Oh. Yeah. You, meaning like you could hurt yourself or? Yeah. That's you know what's interesting about that is that the, the first time I've ever experienced this, and I vividly remember this memory, is that in the gym, uh, one time I was doing box jumps and I missed, and I ended up getting like twenty eight stitches or whatever. Your shin or knee? yeah, it went down to the bone. I'm like bullshit. Oh so I got some cool smiley face matching scars on my shins. But ever since then, I've been able to do box jumps mm -hmm. just fine. But there's been this one time when I moved here. And I was at West Seattle Health Club or whatever down the road. Yeah. And I was doing box jumps. And for some reason, like I don't I don't really have a lot of anxiety. I'm pretty good at just, you know, rolling with whatever's happening. And there's a lot I, I'm a, trying to have a pretty busy schedule, so I, you know, these things don't really bother me that much. But you compartmentalize. I compartmentalize. <laughs> yeah, I just ultra compartmentalized. And, and uh but I remember I was walking up to do the box jump and it was the first time I like I physically felt anxious mm -hmm. and it came out of nowhere and i thought and it, it it literally prohibited me from even jumping like i walked up and i i could not get myself to jump yeah and i and i tried it for like 10 minutes 15 minutes and then finally i like i lowered it down so that way i because I, I i told myself like well damn it you're doing it now you know i'm going to force myself through this because I, I don't normally i've never felt anxiety before and i've never felt crippling anxiety yeah and i it was the first time I took an appreciation towards, I've always had that mindset of people with like anxiety disorder or something. I've always said, you know what? Just like, just plow through it, plow <laughs> through, like don't let it affect you. Yeah. But all of a sudden it was the first time and I physically could not get myself to jump. Yeah. Mm. Like you respected it for the first time. And I respected that anxiety for the first time because I said, whoa, if this is what some people are experiencing on a daily basis, but mm -hmm. towards just like normal everyday movements or like just to get out of bed, just to yeah. do something. I mean, people can experience that for a conversation with a stranger, like with bats yeah. or anxiety or like a chlorophyll. Yeah, just sleeping. Anyways, it's never happened again, but <laughs> that, that first, you, you said you respected it. I respected it to the point where I, I, I internalized the feeling and I said, I think like 
this is anxiety mm-hmm. and it's preventing me from like i was trying to analyze like mm-hmm. what is going on i've never had this feeling before mm-hmm. like even if there was a sense of failure like i'm still gonna go for it yeah but it, there was this internal like don't do it and it physically like prohibited me from recruiting those muscles at that point yeah. to go so it's interesting you use respect because part of um I don't know if I should tell you what I'm trying to do, but part of it is to help uh, Zach have a certain appreciation for this part. Uh, and remember how he said he was very annoyed about it? Yes. But the only way the anxiety will truly ease its grip is if Zach can see, respect what it's been trying to do. Uh-huh. So we'll go back here. Um, mm-hmm. So it was trying to protect you, make sure that you, you stayed safe during that yeah. Marine training. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything else where this anxiety showed up, like even before the military, high school, junior high, you know, the same sensation of uh, uh, anxiousness yeah. slash maybe even protection? Yeah, I think multiple times, like throughout childhood and teenage years and early adulthood. What about the earliest one that this part can recall? Mm. Earliest memorable, yeah. Earliest memory, man. I grew up in a pretty chaotic home, so the most. Well, ask this part. Like you know, you, we're, 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 I'm going to separate you from this part. Okay. If you ask, ask this part, it. like, hey, you know, what age did you first start um, getting activated? When, mm-hmm. when did this anxious part start getting activated? Uh, what would it or he tell you? Man, probably four. Four years old. Three or four. Okay. Um, what does it? He, you, you tell me, or what does yeah. this part want to say? I don't. Um, he's saying. Yeah, it was just a protective mechanism. Okay. He says start at four. Yeah. Uh, what does he want to share that he's comfortable sh- <laughs> knowing all eyes and ears are hearing yeah. this? The dog's watching you. The dog's watching you. is crying in the other room. Um, what would he want to share with me? Like, uh, the, it got activated at four years old. Um, what is he comfortable sharing about that incident at four that got this anxiousness activated? Um... I think just a lot of like uh, chaos in the household that activated it as a protective mechanism. Okay. Um, and how was it a protective mechanism back then? If you ask this part, what did it do to protect you on your end? Just activate like a fight or flight response. Okay. Um, and was it more fight flight? I don't know your definitely more mystery. Okay. So we specifically don't have much of a fighting response. Um, can't run. Carob, by feet. Cameron, I'm missing a bone. Ask this part. What is it afraid would happen if it? Um, actually, I'm going to stop. Pause for a second. Ask this part. What is? What is it's been protective function, either past or present, in in having this level of anxiety to this extent? Um, it's protecting from bodily harm. Okay, trying to protect you from bodily harm. This is going to seem weird, Zach. What if I asked you to um, thank it, appreciate it? Uh, you can either do it verbally or just mentally thank it for, you know, what it's been trying to do all this time, which is protect you. I do it. Okay. Did you do that mentally? Yeah. Um, how did this part receive it? Uh, I received it well. It felt like it was appreciated. Okay. Um, or like seen or heard. It feels heard. Language you want to use, yeah. Uh, is this part surprised that on your end you you gave it some level of appreciation? I would say so. I would say so. Because <laughs> so. uh, ask this part, uh, um, 
what feelings come up for it after finally hearing some level of appreciation after all these years, right? Since yeah. you're age four and probably not getting a lot of positive validation yeah. attention. Um, kind of like the feeling of uh, like when you've always been there for somebody in the background hmm. and they don't really realize it or appreciate it. And finally you just like, yeah, so it feels very validated. It. Yeah, validated. That's a good way to put it. And um, now that it feels validated, if you ask it, um, is it? I also just want to mention that okay. the annoyed part in the imaginary chair has left the room. Really? Yeah. It just left? Yeah, it's gone. See, uh, this hasn't happened when I pop. But this is fascinating because everybody's a little different. Yeah, we're doing it live. Yeah. We're doing it live. Um, so you're not annoyed with it anymore. No. But if you ask the annoyed part, wherever it is, yeah. uh, where did it go and why did it leave? It just didn't feel like it was necessary to be here anymore. It was annoyed with the interest Yeah, it was annoyed with itself. It's just annoyed with everything. <laughs> <Fucking> <laughs> um, so that's fascinating that the annoyed part, after it saw you appreciate it, mm -hmm. it kind of just disappeared. Yeah. Since this anxious part has been around since uh, age four, does it feel like... This he's working overtime when you ask it, like, does he want to take a break? You know, yeah. if it could, yeah, okay. Um, ask him what would be like another part that could take its place. Um, that would be a, like a healthy alternative to take the place of the anxious part. So, we're not like banishing it, so yeah. we don't want this anxious part to think it's getting banished, but we're like retiring it, right? Because, yeah. You know, it's, it's a hard. Hall, hall of fame, right? It served its purpose. You know, it, it doesn't need to protect you from childhood vi violence and her trauma. Mm -hmm. It could kind of just relax a little bit and just go off into retirement. Yeah. But if it had to go off in retirement, something else has to take its place. And if you asked it, what would it want? What I would say probably uh, confidence or more just trust in the process. Okay. Trust. Whenever that process. may be. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. Trust in the process. I was thinking like hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, does the anxious part have anything more it wants to say? Uh, no, it seems relieved. Okay. We'll ask it to just take a seat over there on the sofa. Obviously, if it has to say anything, it can just get your attention. Yeah. But let's go ahead and have that uh, trust in the process part take a seat. Okay. Um, now, what does that part want to communicate with you? The trust in the process part. Like you've done everything you could. When you, on your end, hear this part says, hey, you've done everything you could, do you notice either emotionally or your body, how that feels to hear that part say that? Uh, feels good, calming. That's it. Okay. Um, what does, okay, so the trust in the process part, besides uh, telling Zach you've done everything you could, what do you want Zach to know uh, about tomorrow? You know, the tournament honestly you should be excited because you're going to learn a lot regardless okay on your end are you surprised to hear what it's saying no. <laughs> <laughs> not at all um are there questions you have for this part yeah because the trust in the process is so um you know it's not very tangible it's correct right like we want to know things we you know part of humans is like we're very goal oriented and this whole trust in the process can sometimes feel very fluffy even to you know like a therapist like myself yeah so i wasn't sure if on your end you had 
I think in this situation specifically, it's more like trust your training. Okay. Kind of thing. Okay. Like I've drilled everything enough times that mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing. The trust in the process part, uh, how does that show up in this part's body? And I would say the chest. And how does that chest, you know, what does it want to share about the chest? Uh, that it just feels like relaxed and relaxed, okay. warm and no tension. Okay. And then on your end, I don't know if you're sensing anything similar. Yes, to okay. On. okay. Well, that's kind of just a quick. Huh. You know, that was interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Because you probably said things that you had no idea these parts were going to say. Yeah. So I'm just curious. When you asked me where it manifested, that was not like when I brought up the like uh, the tower that we had to climb. It's like, I don't even know how tall. Um, maybe like 25, 30 feet, but it's like telephone poles that are spaced like five feet apart. And it's just like a vertical wall and you have to like climb all the way to the top, go over and then climb back down. Oh, and that scared the fuck out of me. Over the telephone pole. Yeah. So you have to like reach up and grab it and like kick your legs up, get on top of it and then stand up and grab the next one. And like, they might be like four feet. I don't know. It felt like they were 12 feet apart though. And it was terrifying. But yeah, I didn't expect that to be the first. You didn't know that that was coming out of your mouth. No, not at all. So that's the part when I said, when we externalize it, just like my mom didn't know what was going to come out of her mouth, you didn't know what was going to come out of your mouth. Yeah. And that was unlike the experiences that I had had in previous therapy sessions where I did that. Like it was a totally different experience from that because it was more like an open dialogue with a person rather than a feeling. Well, this is where we straddle that nebulous field of conscious versus unconscious. So... A lot of the therapy is like, well, how do we tap more into their unconscious? Because the logic brain is the thinking brain, but the unconscious stores so much of this and, you know, this this embodiment of having them uh, talk to a certain part or a person mm-hmm. allows for a little bit more flexibility to tap into the unconscious. Sometimes people can even have their body parts talk. I didn't even, I could have started there like, hey, your anxiety is here. Why don't we have your stomach or chest talk? Huh. Yeah. I think that uh, we have a guy in class that does uh, like body work. Sort, yeah, body is that, work. Is that RJ? Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, I think that he might do some of this kind of stuff too. Oh, yeah. interesting. I'll have to ask him. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it was a cool exercise. Yeah. Remember, I'm not even an expert. I'm just reading books on it, and yeah, I'm I'm just curious. But I it, because I've gotten more curious because I traditionally was very talk therapy oriented. Sure. And as I have become more seasoned in the therapy world. I was like, you know what? This talk thing, like it only goes so far because there's a lot of, we as humans just have a lot of defenses and how do we get these other vulnerable parts to get out there? So I started actually, um, not only reading about it, I, I started seeing a therapist where I'm talking to all these parts and like, gosh, this is pretty, um, pr- pretty eye-opening stuff. Yeah, you feel good. I feel way better about the tournament. I mean, I had calmed down quite a bit, but man, I feel... You're already excited. Oh, you know, I wish oh. we could have like measured your heart rate yeah, like earlier with anxiety and then measured it post... <laughs> I could have. <laughs> See if we could actually get a response yeah. to, to match up with it. I'm wearing a Whoop right now. Oh, if they want to oh, does it, us. Whoop 4.0. It's great. Does it uh, measure? It does, but I could have done like a... I could have marked it on my phone that I was doing like a uh, meditation and it okay. would attract my heart rate every like 10 seconds. I saw what I had a faster. Yeah. Yeah. But, but being in your body, exactly. you know, paying attention, you could, you said you could already physically tell there's more of a, yeah, I just feel more calm. 
like a lot more calm about it, a lot more at ease about it. Um, not nearly as anxious about it. And I had calmed down quite a bit before I came over here. I was like, fuck, what if I just get my ass beat for 20 minutes straight? But so how does that, how does that translate to the, the jujitsu therapy that you were talking about earlier? Does it, does it have an implication where you have a greater body awareness being able to consciously like obviously like one of the things that many people learn with martial arts is it's not only like being able to control themselves yeah right is like the first thing and then being able to control your partner is number two mm -hmm. but for people that don't have that mind body connection very well set up when they start when they start you know suddenly they think okay now i can internalize how i'm feeling on this part of my leg and on this part of my leg and that's mm, you know what i mean yeah well, so imagine folks who are very dissociative and they only see themselves outside of their body. I think any practice, whether it's yoga or whatever, that gets them more centered, like, hey, you got to be able to feel your body. You got to press up upon this thing or do whatever uh, exercise. Uh, paying attention, like, you know, in jujitsu or any martial art, you got to do a lot of movements where you got to feel a, feel a certain body against your body. I think that helps, I guess, reground or center somebody. I was talking in my blog a bit more abstractly in terms of like, we all want a sense of mastery mm -hmm. um, in terms of like being able to feel good about ourselves, right? Um, and sometimes that can be achieved like academically, you know, or musically. But for whatever reason, I think just as much as people uh, climb mountains and do all kinds of sports, there's something that translates that can translate when you can master your body in one physical arena that can, I think, tr um, blend into the other areas of our lives that we want to quote master. Uh, right. Yeah. So like if we have, uh, I'll just use maybe generic examples from my own life, like fear, doubt, insecurities, like, how does that show up in martial arts or jujitsu, right? Well, that's going to show up all the time, right? Because yeah, what yeah, am I doing? Am I doing it wrong? Should I keep training? Why am I doing this, right? Um, and there is a bit of that uh, stick with it that I think um, can give me confidence. And like, even the self-discipline, my wife's like, man, you're waking up. Because I got to wake up at 4.30, get our son's uh, lunch and everything all ready, so then I leave by 5.30 to get to the gym by 6. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I like it when you do this because you have so much more um, uh, just, just self-discipline, right? Instead of just sleeping in and feeling bad about yourself, right? But yeah. I think, uh, so that's like one thing, like self self-discipline. But the other piece when I talk about self-mastery is... So if I grew up in a trauma environment, and when I say trauma... Yes, it could be very um, stark trauma, like domestic violence or physical violence, or it could be like myself, a lot of neglect. Like, we were just considered latchkey kids where you're just doing your own thing. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense of helplessness that you don't really know you have until you can articulate the words. And then, sure. you know, because I've gone through therapy, I could say, hey, I have a certain sense of powerlessness and helplessness because I can't change the past. You know, my parents weren't around. They were too busy working and working 12, 16-hour jobs, and I'm stuck at home in South Seattle worried about crime. So there was just, and then, you know, our house getting burglarized and calling the cops and, you know, all this anxiety and fear yeah. just coursing through the body. 
So when people do, it could be sports, right? I have friends that do more traditional running, like, you know, I can't control all these other factors in my life, but at least at the end of the day, I can go for, you know, a run or, you know, for ourselves, we can, we can train and, and it gives us, I think a certain sense of, um, uh, to, to, to recapture that lost power. Sure. Yeah. I agree with that too. Just gives you control over something. Some sense of control, even though we know we don't really, I guess, some sense of control. Yeah. Yeah. So they're taking control. Because there's so many traumas that, at least in my life, like, tell my therapist, I, I can't, there's only so much healing I can do here. Yeah. You know, I want to start moving forward, you know, but I also can get hung up. And what I mean by hung up is like, uh, I don't know if your therapist talks about it, but I also introduce with clients, have you heard of the term negative core beliefs? And mm-hmm. uh, No. I, I think I've heard it. I don't know. Yeah. They're just like, do, do you want to give some examples? It doesn't you have to be your life. Example, no. but. So like generic ones are like, I'm not good enough. Um, oh, you know, I'm not smart. I'm inadequate. Right. So it's like negative self-talk. Yeah. Just like negative, whatever negative self-talk. But through time and experiences, some of those thoughts are not passing thoughts. They, they, we call them negative core thoughts because they become very core to who you are. Uh, and I think um, because I was an Asian American immigrant, you know, we were born in Hong Kong, moved to South Seattle. Uh, we grew up in an African American community at the time. So I wasn't black. I wasn't white. I wasn't really, I mean, I was Chinese, but not really because I'm more Americanized, if that makes sense. I can't really relate to my parents, Mm -hmm. but the environment around me. So there was a lot of uh, racial inadequacy, right? Mm -hmm. And just being able to feel like I fit in with my peers. And then within the Asian Chinese community, I didn't feel adequate because my uh, Cantonese is not up to par with my parents. And then all my peers, or not all, but a lot of my peers are going into more traditional uh, traditional jobs that a lot of Asian Americans go into. It's like, that's not how my brain works. So there was this feeling of inadequacy that's kind of just like stuck around for many years and um, it was just hard to shake. And so I think when it comes to something that's, I don't know if we I use the word neutral, but uh, 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 an avenue where I can really, no pun intended, wrestle <laughs> with that negative core belief, right? Yeah. It can get worked out in a way that just talking about me being adequate, me having a master's degree, it, it doesn't really, um, it, it doesn't metabolize through the whole system. Sure. It, it, do you think some of those negative core beliefs uh, are a way of, I guess, uh, setting themselves up to validate what they're thinking in the worst case scenario. So let's say that yeah, someone, yeah, yeah, like if, like if you're going to go do something you're usually the scenarios that you run through your head are all the ways that it might not work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fail. Right. Mm-hmm. And then if you do fail, then you can say, okay, well, oh, but at least I expected it. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Yeah, and so it, it sort of gives you a sense of accomplishment and control in spite of the failure. Mm-hmm. Because you're like, I knew that I was right. I knew I was right. You know, mm-hmm. when you fail, you said, okay, I knew that this was going to happen. I predicted that this was going to happen because I was going to fail. Yeah. And then you did fail and then you feel accomplished. So, so you like, sort of feel accomplished by setting yourself up in a negative 
precedence before you even start something. Yeah. Like a good example of that, I think, is like in a relationship. I mean, somebody keeps saying, you know, I just think you're going to leave me. I think you're going to leave me. And then eventually you break up. Yeah. And they're like, see, I knew it. Like, I experienced that with like an ex-girlfriend where she would say that kind of thing all the time. Where she's like, you're going to leave. A comforting, even though in trauma. Yeah. No, because she would say like, I think you're going to leave me. I feel like you're going to leave me. And then the night that I broke up with her, she said it like four or five times. And then I broke up with her and she was like, see, I knew it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well... I don't know about that, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I think it's like self-fulfilling prophecy. And then she probably felt better about the fact that she could, you know, trust her cast it. Yeah. Yeah. Like she knew what was going to happen before it happened. So that's some sort of validation for her own feelings. And I think we've all been there at some point or another, maybe not in a relationship, but something. But even if we uh, forecast it or e- even if we feel validated by our own self-fulfilling prophecy, so this is my third foray back into jujitsu because <laughs> there's something that just keeps pulling me back. And it's I think it's this, this, this negative core belief, right? Or the wrestling with it. Cause it's always like, you're not good enough, blah, blah, blah. You're too old. You're not strong enough. You're not flexible. You don't know. I'm, I'm too, well, I, I use this, uh, I tell professor, like, I'm just a slow learner. You got to do that move 10 times before my brain can even, <laughs> you know, understand what's going on. So, yeah, so the negative core belief of inadequacy, uh, let's say like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, let's say I dropped out or I did, right? Dropped out for various reasons and I just tell myself, well, I'm not good enough, right? Mm-hmm. And so I might have forecast it, but I don't like it, right? Like, I don't like that. I, there's, so there's part, there's part of me that's deep within that feels like, no, I want to be able to, to, to meet this negative core belief head on. Sure. Like, I don't like how this negative core belief keeps winning. Yeah. And like, I know there's something deeper within me. Um, if I find the right environment, right? The right environment, the right safety, the right, the people, I think this negative core belief can eventually um, work itself out. It was almost like the, uh, the box jump thing. Right. Mm, yeah, 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 I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, through hell or high water, I'm going to get up on here, but I'm going to, apparently just jumping up isn't going to work. So I'm going to lower the box. Eventually you're jumping. Jump on the box. What's that? I said, eventually you're just jumping on a juice box, but it's still a box. Yeah. But then I like raise it up. Okay. Do it again. It's like, I almost had to like retrain myself to mm. not be afraid of that height, which is something that I've done many times before. Yeah. Well, it really can only take, I think one time though, for you to, uh, like really instill that negative core belief sure like if something significant happens something significant enough that you can just run with it forever and sometimes these negative core beliefs so another thing i didn't implement here that my therapist says is like hey can you think of an image that comes to mind right so i was talking to him uh just earlier this week about jujitsu and i knew there there was these turn minutes i'm not ready i'm just getting back into it but i told him like you know i've never competed but there's a part of me that wants to compete yeah and you know at first we're doing some basic talk therapy Uh, you know you grew up in a competitive environment you want to measure yourself against another person like yeah 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 and then all of a sudden kind of like that forearm experience i'm seeing visualizing this image of me on the mat and all these tears started coming up yeah he's like what is going on right now it always happens we call it doorknob therapy just as soon as the (laughs) the therapy's almost over all these emotions come on like 
I was like, you know, um, I don't know if this makes sense. I told Joe is my therapist name. Like, there's something about doing this that would lead to something about trusting myself. Oh, like which I is want, what I felt in that. Oh, really? Sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Like more trust. Well, that's interesting myself. because I was like, yeah. there's something because I've never really competed at this level. And I told Joe like I've competed hundreds of times when it comes to basketball, but but like this pushes me to another emotional, spiritual threshold that I've never been in where I have to trust myself. And he was like, yeah, I can see there's a lot of yeah. you know emotion. I'm still trying to process it because it just happened this week. Mm-hmm. So I don't have all the words for it. But the most I can say is like, you know, I grew up in an environment where I, yes, I had to trust myself and figure it out because parents aren't around. Um, but- I never really learned how to truly trust myself. Sure. I mean, yeah, I can trust myself to get get through school and, you know, be a working adult. But there's a this other I don't know what it is, but whatever you experience, I think it's more like personalized. I yeah, think. it's like this personal trust that, you know, I can trust my decision making. And and yes, it's jujitsu, but it's also not, right? Yeah. Because the, I mean, the way that I look at it kind of is that like you have external expectations of like you need to be a functioning adult, you need to have a job, you have people to provide for or whatever it may be, but then you have your own personal journey and your personal expectations of yourself and you need to learn to trust yourself in those personal expectations or like same kind of thing for me, like I am pretty sure that I could go out there and win, like I'm pretty confident in myself that I could go out there and sweep the division, but like will that happen? I don't know. So it's like, Manifesting that trust in yourself, well, it's, I think it's uh, interesting because uh, earlier this week I was because I'm, I'm doing the the tournament tomorrow as well. Yeah, and um, I've gotten hurt in a tournament before, broke some ribs and separated a shoulder. And I was like, you know, why? You know, I'm not doing this for professional. You know, I'm not competing in sports for a living anymore. Um, you know, I want to see some legend stuff, but. Yeah, so why am I doing it? Like, there's a risk of injury. And then I thought, you know what? I think the biggest thing for me is that what I tell, what I was telling myself at least earlier this week, because I'm not really all that nervous about it, because I try to just, I know that I perform better from calm. Mm-hmm. So I just try to stay as calm as I can. But it was almost one of those, like you said, where I said, you know what? If my jujitsu is, is transforming or it's progressing the way that I want it to be progressed, I should be able to put myself in these situations and keep myself protected. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to be able to test. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's sort of, because one of the biggest reasons that I got into it was for self-defense and things mm-hmm. like that. And then, of course, I started doing tournaments and things like that. But but I thought, you know what? In a self-defense type of situation, person's going to be going crazy, mm-hmm. and like they do in the tournament sometimes, and I should be able to protect myself. And that, if that's the case, if that's the goal, and I'm progressing the way that I want to be, then doing the tournament should be okay. Should be a good thing. Right. Yeah. Which is honestly the same as my fear. Like the conversation on the chair earlier when I said like protecting myself from bodily harm is, I mean, I've been hurt in class uh, a couple times just through like, you know, stupid situations. And that's pretty much where the fear is. Like, what if I get taken down first match and like I land on my arm and snaps in half? Like that's ridiculous thought, which probably won't happen because <laughs> I am going to pull guard like fuck. <laughs> but regardless of that, yeah, that's kind of the fear. It's like, what if I get hurt? I don't really care if I lose because, right. I mean, worst case scenario, it's my first tournament and I'll just be like, ah, oh, it's my first tournament. I don't get no, that's a self-fulfilling profile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? 
<laughs> See, I'm not even, I told, at first I told my therapist like, oh, I thought I just want to be adequate, you know? Yeah. And, I, and then I was like, you know what? All these tears are saying, it doesn't even matter how I fear out there. Part of this trusting self that I was trying to communicate with him that I think would translate off the mat is, you know, I'm a uh, first time father, I guess, of a seven-year-old. And so like, how do my wife and I, or how do I trust that we're parenting him the right way? Sure. Right. Uh, this is the my second marriage because the first marriage is what got me into jujitsu. Like, well, how do I trust that I'm being uh, a good or capable husband? You know, all these. How do I trust that what I'm doing at work with clients is 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 even good work? Like, so there's because nobody sees what's going on, right? Yeah. So it's like all these weird trust issues come up in my life that's off the mat, but for whatever reason it also can get work through in this physical piece. This is, this is almost my, I don't, I, you know, we don't have to go out forever. <laughs> this is almost one of the things with education that I've talked about a lot, the transition between undergraduate to graduate school. And one of the biggest things that you see transform with students or even with medical school, teaching medical students is all the way up until undergraduate, you're always trying to just fill in an, a predetermined answer. You just, you're, all you're trying to do is see whether or not what I chose is correct. You know, you never have this sort of point at which you're forced to create your own theory, to create your own decision. Oh, because you're just finishing whatever's told. You're just doing something that's already been laid out. Right, right. Suddenly you get to graduate school if you're doing research. Yeah. You have to come up with your own research theories, your own research topics. And like, is there a right answer? I don't know. You have to learn to trust your own hypotheses, yeah. your own decisions, but especially with teaching medical students sometimes when you see a first year medical student come in it's all just multiple choice still it's still can we do the basic science can we do the basic everything and then they get put into the clinic after they're done with their curriculum after the second year and suddenly they're starting to become responsible for making a choice for a patient and is it the right one or is it not I don't know, time to start yeah. trusting your own decisions. Yeah. And that seems to be one of the most stressful situations for them because you see them go back and forth saying, I don't know, is this right? Is it yeah. not right? And the attendings, you know, which one are the ones overlooking some of the students? They say, it's your time to make the decision. <laughs> you know? To yeah. trust yourself. You have to trust your decisions <laughs> now, but it's something that you don't necessarily learn yeah. until you're just forced in that situation. Yeah, it's like trial and error. It's like that, I mean, similar in the military too, if you yeah. have a call suddenly. Think, you know, over-trusting you, like without any sort of skepticism can also get you in trouble as you well. Just blind, blindly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I know sometimes like when we were doing studies on the goats and we would have chronic catheters in the carotid artery and stuff. Sometimes you get aneurysm in the artery and mm. the goats were in a, a, a environmental chamber so we could modify the contents of the gas. And if all of a sudden an aneurysm, carotid aneurysm blew, it was a blood sprinkler inside a gas chamber. Mm -hmm. And you dive in there, you know, head first oh with some, some something, uh, a hemostat or something in order to clamp it off. And then you're trying to do some sort of emergency little patch on this aorta that's just like squirting blood to the ceiling. And it's like, no thing, just do. Like yeah. we have to trust <laughs> everything that you're doing at that moment. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. And, you know, sometimes if it's getting wrong, it's because you've done something that you just assumed was going to be right, but you just went for it. And there was no skepticism to say, hey, you know what? Maybe if I just sew everything 
<laughs> here, I'm also going to sow a nerve that's probably not a great idea, you know? And so like a healthy amount of skepticism yeah. Yeah. Is, is also a good thing as well. But I don't know, that was just a tangent, but it's interesting. But no, it's up. all good. Yeah. Anyways, we're already at an hour and a half. Yeah. Man, time flew. I, I wasn't even sure how we were going to feel 30 minutes at first. We went an hour over my expectations. We're an hour and a half. Hour and a half. It flies by. Yeah, it goes quick. Well, thanks for coming on the show. No, this was fun. This yeah, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So psychology meets neuroscience meets exercise. <laughs> meets Zach. <laughs> meets Zach. Don't have a ton of input. But right. Well, Zach, I won't see you tomorrow. Good luck tomorrow. Thank you. Yes. It'll be good. Good luck. Good I'll luck to Matt's. I'll see you on Matt's. We're in a different weight class, though. Different belt level, too. Different belt levels as well, yeah. I, I got to go off before you do. Trust the process. Well, trust the, you know, <laughs> trust the process. When you're, when you're getting choked out, I'm going to be standing in the crown going, trust the process. <laughs> trust it. I'll give you a thumbs up before <laughs> All right. www.theneuronetwork.org. Wait, first. Sam, do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, I do have a, a book that is coming out that I, it's hard for me to say this, but I will. Yeah. I'm actually proud of the book uh-huh. because it's um, being published by Central Recovery Press. It's been a two-year writing journey, and it's titled uh, My Passport to Shame, From Asian Immigrant to American Addict, and it just kind of chronicles my life uh, growing up in a Chinese culture, but also the duality of trying to live in a Western society that prides itself on individualistic and autonomy, whereas my world is all about um, collectivism and be and being part of the group. And, uh, so um, that's going to come out in, in about a month at, uh, you know, Barnes and Nobles, whatever, Amazon, any, any local bookseller should carry it in, in mid to late April. Cool. Put a link to that, right? Yeah. In the description on Spotify and everywhere. We'll put a link in the show description. Perfect. Perfect. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google, any podcast provider, we should be on there. TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. You know how to find us. Follow us, rate us, review us. You know the deal. So. Signing off. Signing off. Have a good week. Have a good week. All right. Os. 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 <laughs>